I'm Wilson Pruitt, and you are listening to the History of Methodism podcast. You can support us online at patreon.com slash historyofmethodism. Today's episode, Samuel Wesley, Part 2. In episode 24, we talked about the life of Samuel Wesley. Unlike his wife, Susanna, Samuel was a published author. He was prolific in an unsystematic way. Instead of attempting to systematize the full measure of his work, in this episode, I hope to offer two close readings of some of his major works. Most of his work was written early in life, as Arthur Torpy notes in his dissertation on Samuel Wesley. Quote, Most of his writings were produced before he was 45 years old, when neither John nor Charles had yet been born. Later published writings were minimal due to increasing parish concerns, his crop failures and domestic fires, along with the added financial pressures of a large family which kept him from publishing as much as he had earlier in life. He also concentrated on underwriting the education of Samuel, John, and Charles, as well as working on his Dissertationes in Librum Jobi, Dissertations on the Book of Job, a work entirely in Latin, was his most formal theological work. We will discuss that mammoth book at the end of this episode. Early in his career, though, in 1703, Samuel published a well-received treatise on communion, titled, and I need a breath here, the pious communicant rightly prepared, or a discourse concerning the blessed sacrament wherein the nature of it is described, our obligation to frequent communion enforced, and directions given for due preparation for it, behavior at and after it, and profiting by it. <sighs> the title is long, but it also functions as a thesis statement of sorts. We know precisely what we are getting into with Samuel Wesley. John Dunn Scotus was known as the subtle doctor. No one would ever accuse Samuel Wesley's prose of being subtle. He begins the work by setting the scene. Quote, when so many excellent treatises have already appeared on this subject, it may well be wondered why, after all, so mean a pen should attempt to weighty an argument, since tis almost impossible to say anything new upon it, and the mildest question a man must expect who now handles it would be of such same nature that of Job to his friends. Who knoweth not such things as these? But one that is resolved to write a book seldom wants an excuse for doing it, and will be ready to draw one, even from the number of those which have gone before him, since this might have hindered others as well as him. All one sentence. I even had to cut it off. On the next page, he lays out his road map for the treatise. Quote, what I have aimed at in this manual is to be as clear and methodical as I could, both in the description of the nature of the sacrament and the occasion and ends of its institution, and in the directions for our behavior in relation to the reception of it. I have endeavored to give a rational and distinct view of it in all the notions wherein learned and pious men have represented it, to press home the indispensable, though much neglected, duty of frequent communion, which I am persuaded would highly conduce to a general reformation of manners and to repair the decays of Christian piety amongst us. We can see one of the clear differences between Samuel's theology and his wife, Susanna's. Susanna understood doubt and the need for reasons to believe. In her apologetic letters to her children, though, she delves more deeply into the depth of who God is. 
Samuel assumes the veracity of Christianity and the importance of a Christian society. In letters to John, he doesn't seek to justify God, but to justify the Church of England. In one such letter, Samuel writes, If you have any scruples about any part of Revelation, or the scheme of the Church of England, which I think is exactly agreeable to it, I think I can answer them. In this world of the established church, faith cannot truly be questioned. The behavior of people is centrally important, and communion can aid behavior. So it is a good action. Another aspect strikingly missing from Samuel Wesley's treatise on communion is grace. In the introduction, in the introduction, he writes, quote, The end of every Christian duty is to make us still better and holier. The height of our perfection consists in the imitation of God. Unless we know God, we cannot be like him. And the clearest revelation of his nature and of his will is left us by his Son in his holy gospel. The blessed sacrament of the body and blood of the Lord is an epitome of that gospel and a lively representation of that gospel. Concerning the nature of the sacrament, Samuel Wesley uses the language of memorial, made prominent by Ulrich Zwingli during the Reformation. There are benefits to be had, but they are representations. He writes, quote, The shedding of our Savior's blood is only sacramentally, actually, and properly poured forth, as it was on the cross, whereon he was once offered to take away sin. We can see that Samuel's theology of atonement comes out in this language. The sacrifice was Jesus's once for all. The sacrament is a sign pointing to that act, but it is not a new sacrifice on its own. Samuel calls it not a bare remembrance, tis a lively scheme and figure of what Jesus endured. But as critics of Zwingli pointed out a few hundred years before, a memory is only thus a memory. Samuel Wesley then highlights the connection between the Eucharist and the Jewish Passover. His connections are not strong, but they are made with the best of intentions up to the measure of the scholarship of his day. His bias against Roman Catholic theology is found here as well, as would be most common in his time. He writes, quote, Bread and wine they are still after the consecration, not common but sacred and sacramental. They are changed in their use, but not in their substance. But even here, there is an assumption about what sacred means. There is not a description. Wesley defines communion more in the negative than in the positive. He can't bring himself to include the work of Reformed theology, influenced by John Calvin, that informed the ministries of the dissenting churches from where he came, so he is left with a high church Zwinglianism. He goes to pains to follow the no true Scotsman fallacy to the nth degree with this, quote, The symbols, the very bread and wine, are in a figurative, typical, and sacramental sense the body and blood of our Savior. They are more than a bare or ordinary figure. They do really and actually represent and exhibit Christ's death unto us. He says that there is, quote, a real spiritual presence of the body and blood of our Savior, to every faithful receiver. Christ, as to his divinity, is everywhere and more effectually and graciously present to his own institutions and will make his promises good to be with his church to the end of the world. Christ institutes the church. 
And it is in the church that the effect of communion is made, but only to those who are worthy. Later in the treatise, Samuel Wesley addresses the idea that Judas himself partook of the Lord's table, but then he defines faith in what he calls the largest sense, but in a way that I see as quite narrow. Faith is, quote, practical assent to the whole scheme of the gospel, and consequently a ready and firm belief of its revelations, threatenings, and promises, accompanies with sincere resolutions and endeavors to obey its commands, though the more peculiar object of faith in this sacrament must be the merits of our Savior and that pardon which he purchased for us by his own blood. The work continues to focus on our obligations, self-examinations, and what happens before and after communion. But we see already in this work the institutionalized and stilted established religion out of which John Wesley and Methodism emerged. Faith is a duty. Society is good, and people should change to live better in society. In his edition of Wesley's Sermons, Albert Outler does not cite this treatise directly. A few years after Samuel's work was published, Robert Nelson's Companion for the Festivals and Fasts of the Church of England came out and sold thousands of copies. In 1707, Nelson published a revision of one of the chapters titled The Great Duty of Frequenting the Christian Sacrifice. Outler notes the heavy similarities between John Wesley's sermon, The Duty of Constant Communion, and Nelson's work. Outler's only mention of Samuel Wesley concerns a footnote about language. John Wesley does not cite his father. His conclusion even seems to speak directly against his father. Quote, It has been particularly shown, first, that unworthiness is no excuse, because though in one sense we are all unworthy. As mentioned earlier, Samuel Wesley's volume of production slowed as he aged. The great work that took up a significant portion of his time in life, Dissertationis in Librum Jobi, was published in 1736 in London after his death. It was paid for by a subscription method, and the book includes a list of subscribers who paid for the publication, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, numerous lords and ladies, and John and Charles Wesley. Few secondary sources at that time or after engage what I call the Job book. As far as Methodist histories and Wesley studies go, it functions more as an albatross or a white whale to represent all the time Samuel spent pursuing it, rather than a work of substance. Henry Rack's great biography of John Wesley doesn't mention it. Martin Schmidt's biography of John, originally in German, offers a summary of the argument and is the only secondary account I have found of actual engagement with the work. I should confess that I have not read it all in full, but I have simply attempted with my modest Latin to come to a deeper understanding of it than I have seen elsewhere. If Samuel Wesley did indeed neglect Susanna and the children for the production of this albatross, as I have heard claimed, we should at least understand what breed of albatross it is. Before a preface or introduction of any sort, Samuel Wesley lays out the 53 unique dissertations or examinations he is going to perform. I'm going to read a number of them because it gives a sense of the breadth of what he is trying to accomplish. 
One, whether the story is true or merely poetic and parabolic. Two, the author of the book. Three, on the drama of Job. Four, digression on pastoral song and divine love in the Holy Scriptures. Five, on the images in Job. Six, parallels to Homer. Seven, on Job's name or names. Eight, on the posterity of Yoktan. Nine, on the posterity of Canaan. Ten, on the posterity of Phoenicians or the Canaanites. Eleven, on the nations being overthrown by Chedorlaomer and some others among the scriptures mentioned. 12. On the sons of Abraham and Hagar. I'm going to skip a few. 25. On the children of Job. 26. On the wife of Job. 27. On the friends of Job. 28. On the enemies of Job. 29. On the country of Job. 30. On the time of Job. 31. The knowledge of Job in military arts. 32. The jurisprudence of Job. Here's where it gets interesting. 33. Metals. 34. Gems. Okay. I'm going to stop there. When I say it was written in Latin, this isn't a joke. Here is the first sentence of the book. Cum dio in libro iobi versatus suerum eumque sepius. Okay, I have to stop there because Samuel Wesley is long-winded in Latin as well as English. His tone in Latin, though, is lighter than his English prose. By my translation, Wesley writes, While I was engaged for a long time in the book of Job, I read it in the first place in the vernacular, then in the Greek Septuagint Codex, and when you compare both of them for my own model with the original, something always seemed to me to flash out of each lesson and fresh and impressive. And therefore, at length, I began to engage my opponents with some more worthy observations. He then speaks of the other languages he knows and sources and resources he has scoured. The Vatican Septuagint, the Alexandrian Septuagint, St. Ambrose, a Chaldean paraphrase, a Syriac and Arabic version, and then more Latin commentators. The work Samuel Wesley produced itself contains Greek, Hebrew, and these other languages and typefaces that were surely costly to acquire and use. Wesley continues by road mapping much of his argument and then concludes the introduction by relating his task to that of a laborer in the field, harvesting wheat or grapes, who comes to the field after others have already worked. That is, he is picking off some spare grape or kernel, but instead of just scraps, he says that it came out like a river. Before adding, without humility, quote, I have not only labored for myself, but for all who seek the truth which leads us to the first of the 53 dissertations, which sum up the whole of scholarly knowledge about the book of Job in the early 18th century. Samuel lays it all out, but his audience is specifically the scholar and not any of his parishioners. I'll only speak briefly about two of the dissertations. In number 39, Samuel articulates his understanding of the origin of evil. Evil, for Samuel Wesley, is a pedagogical tool of God's. It is a way for us to understand the attributes of God. Samuel writes, quote, This is how our mediocrity can be more sensitive to the vengeance of our God's providence and good on account of his permission that evil should be introduced into the office, whence his wisdom, justice, equity, care for the good, patience, and finally justice for the wicked, willingly and obstinately became known much more clearly than if sin had never entered the world. 
The evil done to Job does not besmirch God, but it is under God's control. We can see Samuel's same desire for a reformation of manners in his doctrine of evil. Sin allows us to live upright, decent lives. Still, grace is far from sight, and we are left to our own willpower to reform ourselves. The second to last dissertation about the faith of Job and Elihu contains an extended attempt to claim that Job and Elihu confess the Apostles' Creed within the book of Job by breaking apart various verses of theirs to show how they match up with the Latin or Greek text of the creed. Seriously, this is the argument. For instance, with the first clause, credu in Deum, or I believe in God, Samuel writes, quote, I do not know whether the Father's voice per se of God occurs anywhere in this book, but with the addition of a pronoun, we have in the apostrophe or the prayer of Elihu in Job 34, 36, O Father, which Samuel notes is in the margin of what we now call the King James Version, but is in the Vulgate, Latin translation, as well as the Tyndale translation. Few translations include this phrase today, nor is it found in scholarly Septuagint or Hebrew manuscripts. Yet a marginal note is enough for Samuel Wesley to make his claim about the creed. The chapter on the faith of Job and Elihu doesn't include grace, but an attempt to anachronistically map on early modern and institutional understandings of faith onto the ancient world. Job can be a model of moral rectitude because Job was a good Anglican. The last 185 pages of this 600-page book contain an exhaustive textual appendix about the different version history of every verse of the book of Job. It functions in this regard as a reference work. In short, Samuel Wesley's goal was to offer the final word on all scholarly knowledge about the book of Job. If you are still listening to this podcast, congratulations. You now have a greater understanding of Samuel Wesley's work than all but a handful of people in the last 200 years. John and Charles Wesley had subscribed to the work and so probably knew it, but the Job book's influence was more indirect. It offered a model for the kind of theology the Wesley brothers would not do, and in that way, it can be edifying for us. Samuel's timing was pretty unfortunate. A hundred years later, he could have been a leading figure in the development of the historical critical method of biblical interpretation. As it was, he stayed until his death a curmudgeonly rector in the north of England in a town called Epworth. But what was Epworth like? And how did this town shape the future Methodist movement? Next time on the History of Methodism. Methodism.